Okay. Well, again, good evening. Welcome to Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews. Uh, I think we're up to about session eight. Uh, and before we get started on what we have planned for tonight, just want to check to see if there are any questions left over from previous sessions or anything that might have come up uh, that you want to uh, cover tonight. And I'll take no response as a no, but if anything does come up, just uh, let me know and we'll, uh, we'll work forward from that. As we've done in prior classes, I'd like to spend just a few minutes and review what we did last time. As you may recall, we talked about some fundamental concepts that are rampant in our society, one of which is success. And we defined how success is carrying out a plan that achieves its end. And in the realistic world of Torah, uh, we want to try to analyze that and find out what that means. And we discussed that there were two types of success. There is the fantasy type, such as, gee, I'll be the best in the world at X, whatever X might be, whether it's driving race cars or uh, sprinting a 100-yard dash or pole vaulting or uh, making, you know, more money than the next guy in a month or whatever it might be. And then there are successes that are satisfying something about us that isn't necessarily a fantasy, such as I want a three-bedroom house uh, with a nice yard uh, that has a, a pretty view of trees, and I find one that I like and I buy it and it satisfies me, and, and that's a fine thing. Uh, we then talked a little bit about happiness being a state of having no conflicts and that what we need to do to achieve happiness is to remove the conflicts that we have. And we do that by getting into the world of reality and discovering what's actually going on and what our conflicts are about uh, and then taking steps to deal with those. One of the important things that we have to do in order to achieve that is to live within reality, uh, and that includes the laws of nature. Uh, and so we looked at the story of Jacob when he meets up with Esau, uh, when Esau comes to meet him with 400 men, and deduced from that that the way that we need to operate within the Torah framework is we're responsible to do everything in our power in a particular situation, and we simultaneously pray to God regarding those things that are outside of our power. And we'll talk a little bit more about prayer uh, tonight. We also talked about good and evil, uh, terms that are very, very common, but sometimes not clearly defined. And we discussed that good is doing the will of the Creator. Uh, and really is centered around involvement in the world of thought and ideas uh, and learning, particularly the study of Torah. Uh, God wants us to be involved in the world of ideas. That is the thing that sets man apart from the animals, is his ability to uh, think abstractly uh, about his own existence and about an idea that may not have anything to do with his immediate survival. Uh, and then we also discussed the concept of evil which has all kinds of uh, dark connotations when we use that word. Uh, but Sajigan, one of the uh, uh, rabbinic scholars, suggested that evil is ignorance. And so that as we get more information about something and understanding and knowledge about it, 
that moves us out of the realm of evil into uh, the realm of being able to, uh, to do good. Then we also looked at Psalms 1, which has a very interesting formula for success built into it. Um, the first part essentially says don't hang out with three kinds of people. Uh, wicked, who are people who are focused on money and power and control. Sinners, who are focused on pleasures that are harmful. And we want to make an important distinction between pleasures that are harmful and pleasures that are not. Uh, the Torah is not at all against pleasure. Uh, and there are really only two kinds of pleasures that a person uh, probably should not engage in. One is one that is halakhically or legally prohibited. Uh, and two, one that is actually harmful to me or might be addictive. Uh, some things for some people, um, you know, are good things and others are not. Uh, one person may be fine having a, a glass of wine with dinner. Another person who's an alcoholic, no, that would be an addictive pleasure for them and get them into real difficulty. So it's important that we, uh, we know ourselves. And finally, we don't want to hang out with people who we described as scorners, people who just put stuff down. Uh, anything, anybody, they've got a reason to tell you why it won't work, why it's wrong, why everybody's against them, uh, or why the society won't work, why the people in charge are bad, blah, 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 blah. Um, so those are people we don't want to hang out with. Uh, an important reason for that is that, you know, the people that we are around tend to provide input and if we get the wrong kind of input, that can begin to affect us. Uh, what Psalms 1 does suggest is that we make our desire God's Torah uh, and that we are constantly involved in the learning and study of that Torah and the ideas that that becomes our primary focus in life. And yes, I have to go do practical things and I have a family to raise and bills to pay and you know maybe a lawn to mow or a car to wash or whatever it might be. But my primary focus in life is about the world of ideas uh, and thinking and growing and working on uh, character development uh, and that type of thing. So that's, uh, that's where uh, I want to be headed with life to have what uh, the Torah would consider success. Any questions on uh, those or any related ideas? Okay. I'd like to cover about four topics tonight, and you see them up on the screen in front of you. Uh, prayer, uh, celebrating holidays, the question of taking on other commandments other than the seven Noahide laws, uh, the whole question of honoring parents, and actually I guess this is five topics, uh, and then there's the one of study. We've talked about being involved in the world of study and learning. The question is, what should I study? Where do I start? What kind of resources are available? Where should I go? Uh, particularly if I'm just getting underway in all of this. So let's begin with the whole subject of prayer. You know, people do it all the time. Uh, they hold prayer groups. Uh, they hold prayer retreats. They hold prayer meetings. People get up early to pray. They stay up late to pray. There are lots and lots of books written about prayer. But the fundamental question is, what is it? Is it just talking to the Creator in a time I want, any way that I want, using any words that I want? Do I need somebody to lead me in that? 
or can I do it all by myself, or does it matter? Um, and what's prayer supposed to accomplish? Should I expect God to talk back to me, to answer what I'm praying for? And if so, how? And do I expect God to give me everything I ask for, or some of it, or none of it? So there are a lot of questions around this whole thing of uh, what is prayer. And we also really want to understand how does it work. It seems that the common understanding of prayer is that I can just start talking to God whenever and wherever I want, about whatever I want, and somehow this is supposed to do something. What it's supposed to do is maybe not so clear, but it's supposed to do something. So let's step back and think back to the courses or the classes we had a few weeks ago on uh, nine tools of Torah. And let's go back to the very first one uh, that we discussed, which is to ask questions. And here are some interesting questions that we might ponder. If God knows everything, then he already knows what I'm going to pray for. So what's the point of praying? And if God is unchanging, then he's already going to do what he's going to do. So what's the point of praying? And if prayer is having a dialogue with God, does he talk back? In fact, is there any dialogue that's actually taking place in this? Really interesting questions that start to, um, you know, hopefully generate our mental juices. Before we go on, any thoughts about answers to any of those? Okay. So I'd like to suggest a different concept of prayer for your consideration. As I understand it, this is the Torah approach to prayer. So let's consider the following. If God doesn't need us, in fact, God doesn't need anything for that matter, and if God is unchanging, then who does prayer benefit, God or man? What do you think? If God doesn't need us, and God is unchanging, then who does prayer benefit, God or me? I'd like to suggest that it clearly needs to be man. Yes, I agree, Linda. And Terry and Laurie, yes, it's a benefit for us. So the benefit's for man, it's for us. So the question is then, what's the benefit and how does it work? So let's look at three main possible avenues of prayer. First is that I'm thanking God for something. 
Okay, maybe something happened and I'm very grateful to it. For example, I had to go on a business trip this last week from, uh, and I live in the, just north of Seattle, Washington, and I needed to go to New Jersey. It's a long plane flight. Okay, got over there, had a good successful trip, got all the way home. I was very thankful to get home safely. Uh, I realized that there's always a danger in traveling and I really appreciate being, you know, getting back to my family. So there is something for me to be thankful to, to God for. Number two, I could be acknowledging or praising something. Uh, for example, I'm making a true statement about God recognizing God's greatness or something along that line. And the third is that I'm asking God for something. So I could be thanking, I could be praising, I could be asking God for something. Okay, now sometimes people get into the idea that they are, uh, well, let me back up. I guess the question would be, do any of these actually change God? And I'd suggest thanking God doesn't, because he doesn't need our praise. Um, in fact, God doesn't need anything, so there's nothing I can do for God. And... In fact, that's an important idea to recognize because sometimes you, you, people, some people get into the idea that they are doing something for God. And yet, God doesn't need us. Uh, and I, even some people get into this idea that they have to go save the world as if God couldn't get along without them. But the Creator created us, and He doesn't need us. We need Him, but not the other way around. Acknowledging or praising something doesn't affect God. Um, he knew what the truth was before we even said anything. In fact, if, if you think about it, our prayer, or excuse me, our praise of the Creator is kind of crazy in a way. Because how can we, being as, uh, I guess, minute and limited as we are, praise the Creator of the universe for anything? Our knowledge is so tiny and so infinitesimal compared to his. It's sort of like trying to praise Einstein because he can add 2 plus 2 and get 4. And finally, if I'm asking God for something, that doesn't change God because God doesn't change. So, it gets back to who is the prayer for, and as we suggested, it's not for God, it's for us. So, what is the benefit? If we pray to God, uh, and Terry and Lord, by the way, I see that for uh, tshuva, uh, repentance, very good. So I'm asking God either for uh, perhaps help with repentance, or I'm asking for him to forgive me for something. Uh, so that would fall, I think, under the third uh, sub-bullet up there under, uh, under asking. So... If we pray to God and ask for something, we are tacitly acknowledging that we're dependent on God. In other words, we're admitting that we can't do everything and that we rely on him. So if I ask God to, say, heal a sickness of mine or someone else's, I'm admitting that I can't do it myself. And this is also an admission that God is the ultimate source. Because after all, we, we continue to exist every second only because God wills it. I sometimes like to think of this like um, 
cathode ray television sets. Uh, you think about most television sets years ago used to be cathode ray, big box, as opposed to a flat screen. Um, the, my understanding of the way these work is that you have three colored guns in the back of the box and they are firing rays from the back of the set at the glass screen on the front and all those little colored dots that make up the picture that we see on the television are created uh, from, from those guns and those form into the TV picture. Now those little guns are firing continually and so those dots that we see that make up the television picture are continually refreshed. And if those guns stopped firing at any point, the picture on the screen would disappear. And I would suggest to you that in that same way, we continue to exist every second because of the career. So prayer helps us to see the truth that we are totally dependent on God. So that's the request part. In other words, when we ask for something, we are acknowledging that God is the one who can provide it. And thanking God for something is just the opposite end of this because we're acknowledging that he provided us with what we needed or what we desired. Okay? And Mona, welcome. And Sylvia, glad to uh, uh, have you here too. Okay, so what about the part where we're praising God or acknowledging God or otherwise making some kind of a true statement about God? And the first thing is that we have to make sure that the statement is true. I mean, we can't be casual about such matters. We need to be sure that we are making correct statements when we stand before the Creator. We certainly wouldn't want to stand up before the Creator and make an untrue statement. So with all that as background, I'd like to suggest an approach or a concept of prayer that is fairly different from what I understand to be the world's common idea about prayer. I'd like to suggest to you that prayer is a process of reviewing correct ideas about God. A process of reviewing correct ideas about God. And there are perhaps a couple of reasons we would do that. First, it helps to educate us as to the truth. You know, we've talked about before in this class, going over and over correct ideas is the way we make real behavior changes, the way we make real ideas real to us. But there's another important thing that's happening here. I would submit to you that God relates to different people depending on their level. For example, God relates to a Moses or an Aaron or an Abraham or an Aaron different than he does to an uneducated street drunk. Now, I'm not saying he does not care about the street drunk, but that he relates to that person differently than a person that is on a higher and more knowledgeable level. The Torah holds that a person's relationship to the Creator is dependent on the level of his or her knowledge and understanding about the Creator. So, how do we enhance our relationship with the Creator? By increasing our knowledge about Him. 
which now starts to bring us back to why the Torah is so focused on study and learning. And one of the ways that we do that is by going over correct ideas about God until they are clear to our mind. Now the prayers in the Jewish prayer book, the Siddur, were carefully crafted by great sages to reflect correct ideas about God. So the act of prayer is primarily about reviewing correct ideas about God in a way that should move us to a higher level so that God relates to us differently. And when we're at that higher level and God can relate to us differently, then we're in a position where we may merit divine intervention. The prayer then, those ideas, change us. And that opens the opportunity for uh, God to relate to us differently. It's also important, and it's a part of prayer, that we say the words out loud, although only loud enough so that we can hear. Why? Because when you say something out loud, it's more real. And it also helps you focus and to clarify the ideas. So I would suggest to you that prayer is primarily about going over correct ideas about God, which helps raise us to a higher level. And in that process, God can relate to us differently. Now, there are no guarantees that God will answer our prayers in the way we want. We can't see the big picture, and we don't know God's ultimate plan. Uh, I mean, it's possible that I might pray to God for something, and there might be an answer to that prayer, you know, many years uh, down the road. But the process is there to help us, regardless of the outcome. So with regard to us non-Jewish folks getting into this, my recommendation is to get a Jewish prayer book a Siddur. Um, there are a number of them available. Art Scroll has uh, quite a number in a bunch of different formats, pocket size, full size, uh, so forth. And in that prayer book, there is a prayer, uh, and I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about it, but it is called the Shemona Esrei, which means uh, 18, uh, it's about 18 blessings. And it's a series of blessings that have been carefully crafted by the rabbinic sages that contain correct ideas about God, and it's carefully organized in an order that reflects the most important things first. Okay? And now I see that, that you have one, Linda, you have one. Excellent. So that is a prayer that is worth spending a fair amount of time studying because it is not at all haphazard. The sages are very, very careful in how they crafted that. Uh, a study that would be a whole separate course in itself. Uh, but there is one thing important for Noahides to remember, and that is we should never say anything in the prayer that is not true. So some words have to be adjusted so that they're accurate for a Noahide. For example, if the prayer says, our forefather Jacob, a Noahide would need to change the words to say, Israel's forefather Jacob. Okay, And most of the changes that are necessary are pronoun changes like that. So that I'm not uh, you know, making a statement that I'm Jewish or uh, something along that line. Now, with regard to prayer, 
Jewish people have an obligation to pray. It is my understanding that a Noahide is not halakhically obligated to pray except if we are in danger. However, there is value, as we talked about, to being involved in prayer. Um, and the Shimona Esrei can be a, a good place to start. Uh, it also includes a place for making personal requests. Um, so you certainly can ask for you know, things that you, uh, that you want or need. Uh, prayer is something of a formal process. And my understanding from my rabbinic mentors is that a Noahide should stand with his or her feet together facing toward Jerusalem, so toward the east, while you pray. Uh, this classic idea of just, well, I'll strike up a conversation with God, you know, like he's my pal, uh, to the best of my understanding, is not appropriate prayer uh, according to Torah. Any questions about prayer? It's, it's a subject that, you know, we could, we could do a, an entire class or two on, but I wanted to at least cover the basics to give you a sense of how prayer in the Torah context differs from the way that I think it is generally viewed uh, in many other religious circles. Any questions about that? Okay. Let's talk a little bit about holidays. Uh, what about celebrating holidays? Uh, that's always a challenge, I think, for Noahides. A Noahide can celebrate certain Jewish holidays, although some of them present some challenges. Um, in, in my view, it's not uh, possible for me as a Noahide to conduct uh, a Passover Seder, for example, uh, exactly the way the Jews do, because it's all about the Jewish people. Um, but there are, you know, certainly ideas and things that we can study. Uh, we can celebrate certainly Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Hanukkah and Purim uh, and so forth. And different people do it different ways. And I think the real key around any of these holidays is to study the ideas around them. What's the holiday about? Why is it being held? What kind of truths can we glean from uh, this holiday and the ideas behind it? So we're not halakhically required to do that, but it's an opportunity. So on Hanukkah, uh, you know, I could study the history about how Hanukkah came about and uh, the, the miracle of the oil and um, uh, the fight of the Maccabees and so forth. And I could choose to light Hanukkah candles every night. Uh, my family uh, generally does that during Hanukkah. In your prayer book, there are some special blessings that are said uh, over lighting uh, the candles or right before lighting the candles of Hanukkah. And you'll find that in your prayer book. Um, you can go through and, if you wish, get a, uh, a Moxor for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's a prayer book especially for those holidays. You could simply study the prayers. You could say some of them. Uh, but the idea is to uh, dig in and find out what's the holiday about uh, and what ideas can we learn from that. Now, as Noahides, we are strictly forbidden uh, against creating new religious holidays, even if they were in celebration of the seven Noahide laws. Uh, and that's because we'd be starting to create our own kind of religion or religious 
experience, and that is something that the Torah does not allow us to do. Uh, it is acceptable to observe secular holidays like the 4th of July and Memorial Day, and uh, there's not a problem with that. When it comes to the Sabbath, which is not a holiday, but which is something that comes every week, uh, a Noahide is not permitted to observe the Sabbath in exactly the same manner as a Jewish person. Uh, the Jews are commanded not to work on the Sabbath. And, and just to clarify, I should point out, the Sabbath starts on Friday night, as you probably all know, and ends on Saturday night. It has nothing to do with Sunday. Um, the whole thing about Sunday being a religious day is, is something that, uh, as I understand it, the Christians developed. But uh, Shabbat, or Sabbath, uh, from a Torah perspective, starts at sundown on Friday night, uh, or when the, the changeover of the day occurs, and ends on Saturday night. Now, during uh, that time period, Jews are halakhically permitted, sorry, halakhically prohibited from working. Now, work is not what we might just normally expect as work. Work is a very carefully defined halakhic term. Um, and because it is prohibited for a Noahide to carry out Shabbat in exactly the same manner as a Jew, we need to do something during that day that constitutes work. Um, so I could keep the Sabbath exactly the same way a Jewish person does, and as long as I struck one match, which is halakhically considered as work, then I would have uh, essentially um, done some work and therefore not kept the Sabbath exactly as a Jewish person, and I'd be fine. And the reason for this is because the Sabbath was given to the Jews, not to the Noahides. And so it's prohibited for us to participate in it in exactly the same manner as a Jew. But again, you could do everything like they do and strike one match and you'd be good. Now, what, what I would suggest and what was suggested to me by one of my rabbinic mentors is to focus on the purpose of the day. Uh, again, with regard to, to holidays and also with regard to Sabbath. You can use that as a day to focus on learning and the world of ideas, um, be involved in, in study and discussion uh, with family of ideas uh, on Yom Kippur. Uh, one can use the day to focus on ideas of repentance uh, and so forth. So there's a lot of leeway in there, a lot of material out there that one can study about each of the holidays. And uh, so you can go into that pretty much in as much depth as you choose to do. Any questions about uh, Sabbath or holidays? Okay. Uh, and in fact, let me catch up just a little bit here on my, uh, my slides. What about blowing a shofar? Uh, Terry and Lawrence, great question. Um, I assume you're asking if it's allowed or not allowed. To the best of my knowledge, I have never heard that a Noahide is prohibited from blowing a shofar. Um, you would want to ch probably check with the person that you rely on for uh, halakhic um, decisions 
but I've never heard that it is prohibited for a no-hide blower shofar, so I think that would be okay. Um, and you just wrote yes for Shabbos. I'm not quite sure what that means, so probably have to elaborate if that's a question there. Anything else with regard to Shabbos and holidays? Okay, let's move on. Um, as Noah hides, the question often comes up, what about taking on other commandments? So we have the seven Noahide laws, that's true, but should I take on other commandments? And based on my discussions with my rabbinic mentors, uh, this is the best answer that I can give you, and it makes a huge amount of sense to me. There are many additional commandments among the 613 commandments that the Jewish people have to keep that a Noahide can take on. But, and this is a big but, one should only take on a commandment if he or she sees the benefit to himself of taking on that commandment. See, there's a real danger here that what we call our religious emotion will push us into wanting to do something more for God or because it's the right thing to do or because I somehow think it's going to make me more religious or more pious or somehow better in God's eyes. And that emotion can be very, very dangerous. We need to approach this from a very practical perspective. Uh, and we need to carefully think through whether we're taking on this commandment, whatever one we're focused on, for the right reason. So let me give you an example. Uh, as you all know, the Torah prohibits Jews from eating pork. So a Noahide might say, well, that means pork is bad, and I shouldn't eat it either. Now, based on my understanding of Torah and the Torah approach, that reasoning would be faulty. First of all, I'm saying, well, because it's prohibited to the Jewish people, that means pork is bad. But you know what? God made pigs too, along with fish and cattle and chickens, you know, and eagles and rocks and everything else. Pigs didn't just, like, fall off the cosmic turnip truck. So refraining from eating pork in and of itself isn't going to somehow magically make me more religious. What I would need to do is study that commandment and probably all the laws of, laws of kosherus, of kosher eating, and learn the underlying reasons behind those to the degree that we can know them. And then clearly see, okay, what is the benefit to me of taking on that commandment? And then if I see that very clearly, then yes, I might choose to take that on because I clearly see this is a real benefit to me. And I'm doing it not because I'm trying to, like, you know, um, uh, get in good with the teacher or uh, whatever, but because I clearly see this is of value to me to take this on. Remember, our whole Torah approach is about knowledge and understanding. So before we um, go and take on a commandment, we want to clearly understand why we're doing it and make sure that we're doing it for the right reason. Okay. Any questions about that?
Okay. Uh, let's move on. Let's talk about honoring parents. Honoring parents is not amongst the seven Noahide laws. However, it's a very positive thing to do. It's not halakhically required to carry this out, but is considered a very, very positive thing to do. And it's important to understand that the, the commandment given to the Jewish people uh, and that we could uh, choose to take on in this regard is not, we don't honor parents because they were good parents. And we don't honor them because they were nice to me when I was growing up or all that stuff. The obligation to honor one's parents is because each of us would not exist were it not for our parents. They were the physical cause of our existence. And so we honor them for that. We would not be here uh, if it weren't for them. And it doesn't matter whether my father uh, or, you know, or my mother were mean to me growing up or they didn't give me the attention that I wanted. I honor them anyway because without them, uh, I wouldn't be here. So that's the idea about honoring parents. Does that make sense? Does anybody have any questions about that? Okay. It's a brief topic. I just wanted to cover it, but very, very important one. And Moni, you mentioned you'd heard about benefits of keeping kosher, fewer illnesses, and actual healing of someone over that. Um, that could be. Uh, I, I can't say one way or the other. I mean, people often, and I'm going to pick on, on pigs uh, because that's probably one of the most commonly known aspects of, uh, of kosher eating. Uh, and people say, well, the reason for, for uh, you know, uh, not eating pigs is because you can get trichinosis and, and that sort of thing. Um, but my understanding is uh, that that's... Uh, that's not the reason, as best they can tell, for why those commandments were given. There certainly are some side benefits, uh, and you know, if you if you looked at it and decided, you know what, uh, I I've, I've tried this, and frankly, I feel better when I eat this way. Uh, that would be one thing. But to choose to halakhically take on the restriction, uh, you, I think we would want to delve into very carefully of what's the benefit of the restriction to me and why will that be uh, helpful to me. Uh, yeah, Jack, I would agree with you. The, the commandments were not given for the purpose of physical health, um, at least to, uh, to the best of my knowledge and understanding. Uh, now, one may you know, achieve some physical health because of those. Uh, but there are some other underlying reasons, as I understand it, that uh, are more powerful in the, in the psyche of people uh, than those. And I'll just pause here in case we had other questions on that or comments.
Okay. Um, let's move on. So we get into the question of what should we study? Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, being involved in learning and study, and yet, as I'm sure some of you have, if you looked out at the giant ocean of information out there in the world of Torah, one can get overwhelmed really fast and uh, not know where to begin. So I'd like to suggest some resources to you, uh, particularly for those just getting started in this, that can be very helpful. Um, one of uh, the recommendations I've received from uh, Rabbi uh, Bernie Fox, who is the principal of Northwest Yeshiva High School uh, in uh, Mercer Island, Washington, is The Living Torah. Uh, by, uh, translated by R.E.A. Kaplan. It's published by Mazname Publishing Company. It is a very easy to read Torah. Um, you know, when translations are done, there, there is a huge, uh, I guess, art in, the, in translating because if you just translate words, then you can end up with sentences that don't flow well into another language. And on the other hand, uh, if you do sentences that flow well, uh, then some people may say, well, but you've missed uh, a subtle meaning here. And uh, given that he manages a high school, uh, his recommendation is pretty uh, uh, strong to me, uh, and that's uh, the Living Torah. And Jack is just pointing out it's also on the web uh, available there. Jack, I don't know where that is on the web, and if you happen to have a web reference, I uh, would love to, uh, uh, to see that. Um, so I know there's lots of stuff out there on the web, and that would be a great one to have available. It is a very readable book, one we used with our sons um, as they were growing up. Once you get, uh, a, obviously, a copy of, of the Torah, uh, one of the suggestions, um, thanks, Jack, uh, appreciate that. One of the things that I would suggest is that you get a copy of Rashi's commentary on the Torah. Um, the scholars' commentaries are invaluable in understanding what's going on in a particular passage or section. Uh, Art Scroll produces a nicely laid out and readable version of Rashi's commentary, and there, and there are a number of other ones as well. Then, when you read through a section of the Torah, say the weekly Torah portion, um, if you're familiar with that, let me pause and digress, um, the Torah is divided into sections, and uh, the Jewish folks have those connected to the calendar so that, generally speaking, they read one section of the Torah every week. So that by the time a year has gone by, they have covered uh, the whole Torah. Uh, and then they go back and, and start all over again. And every year, so you're, you're going through the whole Torah, and you can learn something new every single time. So if you're reading through a section, um, Read it, and as we've talked about asking questions, think about what questions come to your mind, and then read Rashi's commentary. And one of the interesting questions you can ask yourself as you do that is, what's bothering Rashi? Why did he bother to write his comment about this particular verse? Something must have been have prompted him to do that. And why did he make the comment that he did? And see if you can figure out, you know, what it is, and read his uh, then his comment as to the uh, the information that he's uh, 
he's providing in that. And I notice, uh, thank you, Linda and, and Norma, that a number of you have the Stone Edition of Akumish. I have that as well. That's a, uh, also a good book, particularly because it has a really nice uh, anthologized commentary where they've summarized uh, briefly a number of commentators on various verses. So you can also get a real sense of, uh, of some of the different commentators. There's Nachmanides uh, and uh, the Matsudas David and a number of them uh, that are available. Rashi is a great one to start with. Um, and once you've, you've gotten all the way through the five books of the written Torah with Rashi, uh, you could pick up another commentator and do the same thing. And different commentators will focus on different questions and different passages. And sometimes they have differing opinions, uh, not on the basics, but on, on uh, different things. And so you can get a... Uh, you know, of what uh, different commentators are thinking by going through it. That student uh, is a two-volume work called Duties of the Heart, by uh, Rabbi Bakia ben Joseph ibn Pekuda. This is a very, very classic work, uh, and Feldheim Publishing uh, has a very readable translation that's available in full-size hardback or mini hardback. I highly recommend this book. Um, it talks about exactly what the title suggests duties of the heart. Uh, what are the responsibilities of our heart? We know what our halakhic responsibilities are, uh, but what are the responsibilities uh, of the heart? Uh, so highly recommended book for, uh, for Noahides and Jewish people as well. Um, a second and very important area of study for Noahides is the study of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs uh, is a great area for beginners, and I would classify most of us Noahides as beginners, because it teaches us about the practical application of some of the ideas that we've discussed in this class as they apply in every in our everyday lives. Um, I mean, a, a giant theme of that, as we've discussed, is we each have our intellect and our emotions, uh, and the question is, which one are we going to use to make our decisions? Uh, that's a central theme. And then uh, King Solomon, who wrote Proverbs, um, goes through and starting with about chapter 10, gives us in, in usually each individual verse, case after case after case after case, uh, that we can analyze to see how life works out practically uh, when we uh, you know, are choosing uh, the right road uh, as opposed to not. Uh, each verse usually presents a different case involving good and evil or wisdom and foolishness uh, and that type of thing. And what happens as you analyze these verses is you also begin to learn how to analyze an idea because you begin to see how one thing differs from another. Uh, and the best way that I can suggest to study is to get the tapes of Rabbi Martin Moskowitz uh, on Proverbs. They're available through the YBT.org website, and read a verse, and then listen to his commentary. See if you can think of all the questions and what the verse is trying to say, and then listen to what he comes up with. And I will tell you that I have been studying with him for uh, probably on the order of about 18 years, and that that study of the book of Proverbs has changed my life, and it changed the way I think about life, and the way I think about practical uh, everyday problems and the way I deal with my own emotions. Uh, so it's a very, very uh, powerful study. Then if you would like a 
uh, a very fascinating and insightful book on prayer. Uh, I want to recommend one that has a rather unusual title. Uh, it is called Infertility in the Bible uh, by Jesse Fishbone. Jesse is a personal friend. Um, she wrote this book about infertility, but to me it is a very insightful read for anyone, young or old, male, female, regardless of whether you're dealing with infertility or not. Um, Jesse has a very engaging way of writing, and her explanations of prayer and how it works are some of the most practical and understandable that I've read. Uh, it's published by Devorah Publishing. You can get it through Amazon.com or likely through almost any Judaica bookstore. <clears throat> With regard to websites, uh, there are uh, two that I would highly recommend. Uh, plus a third. First of all, you're probably all familiar with the Noahide Nations website uh, and all the resources out there. Uh, so I don't have that one specifically on this list. Uh, but the first one is uh, www.ybt.org. This is uh, short for yeshivabenetorah.org and has on it just a whole treasure of information. I've talked before, I think, about the Noahide tapes of Rabbi Israel Chait. He did about 100 one-hour lectures uh, a number of years ago that are all available on tape uh, through this site, specifically aimed at Noahides. Uh, and he is just an incredibly insightful uh, thinker and presents things in a way that uh, Noahides can understand. There are also a number of audio classes available online that you do not have to order. You can just listen to them over your computer. Uh, I recommend uh, some of the, the classes of Rabbi uh, Reuben Mann uh, on that. Rabbi Chait also has lectures uh, on that site. Uh, many of them are lectures with his yeshiva students, uh, and you certainly can listen to them. I have found that uh, those folks are at uh, a high enough level that I have difficulty sometimes following the ideas, uh, and I've learned enough to stay uh, at, at a level where I can understand things until uh, my understanding grows. But Rabbi Mann has a number of um, classes, and you can go back many years, that are playable uh, uh, using, I think, just real player, uh, that are topics that would be of great interest to in Noahide. Plus, there are written articles there. Um, so, and Mona, thank you. I, I appreciate your, uh, uh, your kind, uh, kind comment. Uh, and uh, well, Linda, you've asked, I'm not sure if this is a question, uh, do we not learn prayer from the, from the women, uh, Sarah and Hannah? Uh, the story of uh, Hannah, if it's the one that I'm thinking of that you're referring to, where she went and uh, prayed for a child uh, and was uh, blessed with the child Samuel, uh, yes, we learn a huge amount. Uh, from the study of that. And it's a very, that, that again in itself is a whole class uh, that we could delve into on, uh, uh, on what that's about. Um, some of you may be familiar with the website masora.org. Uh, that is uh, masterminded, if you will, by a gentleman named Rabbi Moshe Ben Chaim, who also publishes a weekly publication called the Jewish Times with some excellent articles. Uh, sometimes directly, uh, there are some things directly addressed uh, for Noahides. 
Rabbi Moshe Ben-Heim gives an audio class through Masora.org every Sunday at 11.15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, that doesn't cost anything. You can listen to it uh, over the web in, in using a similar kind of software uh, to what you're using now to be involved in this class. Uh, you can also actually dial into a conference call for that class and be on the phone so that you can orally ask questions to him. Uh, and if you are interested in that, please email me uh, and uh, we can put you on the list. The only cost involved to that is you have to make a long distance call from your telephone. Uh, so whatever your long distance rate is, it's within the United States, but it, it, the, the number, unless, you just, unless it's a fluke, won't be in your local area. So it will be a long distance call. Uh, if you have unlimited long distance, then you know there wouldn't be any cost to you for doing that. So you have a couple of choices with regard to that. But there's also a lot of good information uh, on the Masora.org website. And then one other place that I have found some interesting articles. Uh, take, sometimes they take a slightly different approach, and I don't always agree with everything, but found some good things, particularly for my children, is the H.com uh, website. Some very good articles, constant new information there, a lot of them about things that are going on in Israel right now, uh, and uh, you might also uh, uh, look at that. If you have small children, they have some very interesting uh, articles that we found very helpful to, uh, to read to our kids uh, about uh, you know, issues that the kids might deal with and character development and that sort of thing. Um, and Jack, thank you. Uh, Rabbi Chait's uh, lectures are also, uh, I assume you're referring to Masora. Uh, those lectures are available there. I don't know, and Jack, you may know whether those lectures are available for audio listening as opposed to purchase. Okay, yes, thank you. Uh, so you can listen to those uh, without cost at Masora.org. You can also order them on a CD if you want to uh, you know, carry them around on an iPod. Uh, or something like that and have them available uh, in that format as well. Any questions on materials uh, or anything along that line? Anything we've talked about? Oh, Jack, you can download those off the Masor.org website. Oh, that's great to know. I did not realize that. Thank you for letting me know. That's excellent. That's great news. Yeah, those are very, very rich lectures for an OI. Just wonderful, wonderful material. I, I could not recommend that more highly. So, okay. Uh, if there are no questions, uh, I do want to uh, ask you to do a little homework for next week. Uh, what I would like to do is take you on a journey through a section of the Torah, uh, a fascinating story that will help show us the method of, uh, the Torah method of digging for buried treasure uh, in the details of a story. Uh, we're going to be looking at a portion of the story of Joseph and his brothers. And in order to get the full background, you need, and if you're familiar with the story, that's great. Uh, otherwise, you need to read Genesis chapters 37, 39 through 41, and the first six verses of chapter 42. Um, and if you could read actually uh, into 
a um, uh, little bit into chapter 42 up to, say, verse 36, uh, that would be good as well. Uh, so, and we'll be digging into that in some detail, but I want to make sure that you are familiar with the background of the story uh, before we start on that. This is information that I have received uh, from Rabbi Reuben Mann and through Rabbi Chate, and it is just incredibly fascinating to see how much insight is buried into a story that is very easy to gloss over quickly. Um, okay. Uh, any questions about that? And Mona, I see you write it out for us. Yes, I am working on a, uh, a written version of these classes, uh, which I hope to eventually uh, uh, be able to make available to you. So, uh, And yes, uh, Linda, the homework again is if you could read Genesis chapters 37, 39, 40, 41, and say 42. So the story of Joseph and his brothers. And we'll begin to tackle that uh, next week, and we'll take as long as we need. Any questions? Thank you, Jack. Appreciate that. Oh, Mona, yes. <laughs> now you probably were referring to the, uh, the homework, not this class. And Jack just wrote that out there, Genesis 37 through 42. So thank you, Jack. Okay. Well, with that, if you have questions during the week, uh, please email me and let me know. Otherwise, I will look forward to talking with you all next week. Thanks very much, and have a great week. Great class as always, Deb. Uh, so somebody let me know that I'm coming through okay. I'm not overdriving.